Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with Jojo Mehta, co-founder and executive director at Stop Ecocide International, who are pursuing their goal to have ecocide, which is mass damage and destruction of nature, added to the International Criminal Court as a fifth crime alongside genocide, war crimes, crime against humanity, and crimes of aggression. In this episode, we talk about the global ecocide movement and the momentum that it's seeing, the impact and ripple effects of what this law would mean, activism, the importance of attention, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this smooth conversation thanks to our sound partner, Audio-Technica. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Jojo, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your story. So let's start there with your journey. How did you become an environmental activist and how did you end up running an environmental foundation? Well, I guess the sort of thread of like deep care for the natural world was there from when I was a child. My mother is a singer and a songwriter and her deep inspiration was always the earth and nature and the seasons. So I think I kind of grew up with that as a sort of deep thread internally. In terms of my career, I wouldn't even really call it a career. It's kind of meandered around different areas from travel to manufacturing to design and eventually coming to environmental campaigning actually through a kind of bit of a wake up moment. And I, and I think sometimes this, this is what happens for people. And for me, it was when I discovered fracking and realized that it was potentially coming to the UK and started looking up about it and just remember thinking, well, this is insane. You know, what, what, why are we even engaging in this incredibly, not even economically useful method, but, it, you know, obviously environmentally, potentially disastrous method of extraction. And it was my little daughter. She was five then. She heard me talking about it and she burst into tears and she said, mommy, I don't understand. If they're poisoning the earth, surely they know they're poisoning themselves. You have to call them and tell them to stop. And I remember at the time just sort of thinking, well, you know, what difference is it going to make if I call one of these big companies? But she was really insistent. She said that, well, who can you talk to? And I ended up talking to my local MP, like my parliamentary representative, my elected representative. And he was this conservative politician who did this very kind of slippery thing of avoiding all my questions. And I, I remember coming out of that meeting thinking, this is never happening again. And, and I just started to inform myself, write literature, give talks, organize demonstrations. So I came to this whole thing very much from a kind of on the ground activist perspective. And over, so this was, would have been about maybe 10 years ago. And then through that, I encountered the work around the possibility of criminalizing mass harm to nature. And that just felt to me to be such, you know, a no brainer, such an obvious thing. I, I just remember thinking, well, you know, this is kind of the biggest game in town. Obviously you'd want to work with this. <laughs> um, and, and got on very, very well with the lawyer who was at the time very much the figurehead for that initiative, Polly Higgins. She's sadly no longer with us, but we worked very closely together for several years. And I suppose you could say on one level, I kind of inherited the sort of global campaign that we started together. And it's just been a roller coaster ride ever since. It's, it's really just gathering incredible momentum at the moment. Yeah, no, it's, it's, so, it's such a fantastic and, and such a needed movement that you're building and creating. And I, I, it's such a beautiful story that it came from your daughter. I didn't actually realize that when I was reading up about you. So that's a, yeah, that's so amazing that kids have such a power, you know, because everything's just so simple in that, you know, and black and white. And it's like, why can't that be done? So I, I love that <laughs> that kind of stemmed from her. Uh, so for someone that's maybe not heard the term or kind of understands it, maybe you could just like give us an understanding of exactly what is eco. Ecocide is a word that is increasingly being used around the world to describe mass damage and destruction of nature. 
in other words, severe and either widespread or long-term harm to ecosystems. And I use those terms very consciously because a few years ago, our foundation actually convened an international panel of top lawyers from around the world to draft an actual legal definition of ecocide. And, and that has gained huge traction. It's had a lot to do with how fast this movement's been moving. And the, the core of what they defined is so short and simple that it's actually bears repeating here. And it fits remarkably on the back of a business card. And it's ecocide means unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there's a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. Now, although that actually has its roots in established legal language, it's also very straightforward, as in, you know, you and I can understand it. It can be easily understood. And so it's really helped to kind of galvanize support and have people kind of, you know, understand what we might be covering when we're talking about ecocide. We're talking about the sort of the, the biggest level harms or threatened harms to any aspect of the environment. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for sharing it. And you're right. It's, it's, it is very clear. I really liked the quotes that popped up on the Stop Ecoside website around rules and laws. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit conceptually about if a law was actually to serve a higher moral authority, what could that look like and what would it actually achieve? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is this is something that speaks to really sort of the heart of what we're trying to do here, because laws, I mean, obviously, the you know the way that our you know, our world and our interactions, you know, societally and, 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 you know, both within and between nations and so on, you know, are governed by laws, national and international laws. And those laws are the product of a culture. And effectively, we have had centuries of developing a culture that is highly anthropocentric, highly property centric as well, I might add. And effectively, you know, when we look at you know, potentially the, 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 the companies that are creating the worst harms in the world, for example. You know, it's not like they're run by a class of supervillains. What actually is the case is they're the logical kind of culmination of a cultural attitude that has, you know, effectively hold, held sway for several centuries. And, and, and really, that attitude is one of domination and alienation when it comes to the living world. So, you know, effectively, we have this way of treating nature as a bank of resources without real thought as to how long one continue, can continue to do that, you know, in a, in a, on a finite planet. I mean, you know, clearly what, what's happening now is a massive reality check in, in that way. But also it has a, there's, a, there's a real kind of lack of understanding of how deeply intertwined we are with the living world. We are not separate. We, we are part of nature. We're not separate from nature. But the whole Western canon of thinking, which, which goes back centuries, if not millennia, actually, you know, goes right back to like the Greek thinkers and so on, you know, is that we are effectively separate from nature. We have the right to, you know, to govern nature as we wish, etc. Now, obviously, as we're seeing from the, you know, ever more extreme weather events and, and you know, the, some of the very concrete results of climate and ecological breakdown, you know, we're not the ones in charge here, actually. You know, we're the ones creating the damage, but ultimately, you know, we actually need to rebalance that and come back into harmony. So one of the kind of core drives, if you like, of putting mass harm to nature, in other words, ecocide, alongside war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, you know, when you put it in onto that list, which is what we're aiming to do, what you're saying, I mean, on one level, it's quite simple. Let's add a crime to this list of crimes. You know, we're not we're not kind of, you know, mass massively rocking the whole legal systemic boat here at all. It's it's quite straightforward. But in terms of sort of cultural understanding, it's quite profound. It's subtle, but it's profound because what you're saying 
is it's as bad, as dangerous, as wrong, and actually as serious to severely damage ecosystems and the natural living world as it is to damage people. And ultimately, it ends up doing the same thing. So, you know, people might say, well, how can you put that alongside genocide? Now, clearly, the intent level is different. I mean, ecocide tends to be collateral damage from rapid economic development rather than something you set out deliberately to do. But when you look at the consequences, when you look at the consequences, you can really see, you know, why ecocide belongs alongside those most serious crimes. Because, you know, it, it's not just a people or, a, or a, a part of a people that we're looking at a threat to. It's actually kind of civilization as we know it within a relatively short period of time if we don't make serious changes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you said so many great things there and it is very, very clear, you know, why this does need to be, you know, one of those alongside those other massive crimes that people are doing. So could you sort of share how, like, say once you achieve the goal of getting it alongside those other crimes, like what will actually be happening and how could some of the uh, disasters and crimes that are actually happening right now, what, what would be different? Okay. Well, I'd like to sort of take that, I'd like to break that down a little bit, if that's okay. So, I mean, the kinds of things we might be looking at, because obviously we're looking at international level crimes here. We're not trying to catch, you know, every, you know, beloved tree that gets chopped down on a village green or something, you know, much as obviously completely sympathise with, with people's feelings around those things. This is about looking at international level crimes and setting a kind of foundational piece that has everybody take the whole body of environmental law a lot more seriously. Because at the moment, what you have is a situation where companies will, you know, they'll kind of do tick box exercises when it comes to environmental protection because of, you know, maybe because of regulations that are in place, or they'll try and skirt around those regulations, or they'll be thinking about, you know, how much of a certain toxin can we use in a certain circumstance before it crosses a particular line. You know, these kinds of attitudes will change when there is a foundational piece that actually says, you know, if you're in breach of any of these frameworks, and there's plenty in place, and you're threatening this level of harm, suddenly you're in the territory of criminal law and potentially international criminal law. And that actually creates a completely different landscape for decision making and a completely different landscape for how seriously people take the regulations that are in place and that continue to be improved over time. So this will support the um, evolution, if you like, of environmental regulation and protection over time. But the second aspect that I want to bring in here is actually as important and in some ways maybe even more important than what exactly will happen when the law is in place. And that is what will happen between now and then. Because effectively, what, what is the, the temptation is to think about, well, if this law was in place tomorrow, you know, what would it look like? Actually, the beauty of communicating about this now and also the fact that when we look at the developments, which actually are now quite fast at the diplomatic level, there are lots of countries talking about this. And for example, even the, you know, the EU is having serious discussions about including it into its revised environmental crime directive. For example, you know, there's a clear direction of travel here, but it is going to take a little bit of time before the law is in place. Now, actually, let's say that that's, I don't know, three to five years, let's say, to get it into place at the international level probably less in certain local jurisdictions. But what that means is that window of time is the strategic window for change. And what's really interesting is that when we put these little business cards with the definition, we put one in the hands of anybody that knows their own sector, what they do, and they can't help it. If they know their sector well, they will be looking at that definition as a lens. They'll be seeing through it like a filter. And they'll be thinking, well, what do we need to change in what we're doing if we want to stay on the right side of this by the time it comes in? 
And that is gold dust. Because at the moment, what we have is a real problem with the pace of change. We have, and, and, it's, and there's a deep frustration. You can feel it at grassroots level. You can feel it in the corridors of the UN. Everybody can feel it. Nothing is happening fast enough. The change is not happening fast enough to address the level of crisis that we face. And a lot of that is because people don't actually know what to do. You know, you end up with companies discussing paper, paper straws and, and, and electric cars for their sort of fleets rather than actually looking at the more fundamental issues of where they need to steer what they're doing. And that's what this framework does. It gives people a tool, it gives people a lens to look through to go, oh, well, what are we going to have to think about? Because ultimately, you know, this is not about, I mean, of course, you know, once it's in place, there will be prosecutions. There's no doubt. But it's not about that. It's about actually protecting the planet. And if you're going to protect the planet, what you want is people to change behavior. So that window for behavioral change is actually starts to get inspired as soon as people hear about this, because, you know, they know it's coming. I mean, we already know that in the G7 and in the G20, they're talking about this. It won't be public yet, but we know that this conversation is, is, is there in, you know, in those rooms. And we know it's being talked about at the highest level. And we're obviously one of the things that we do at Stop Ecoside International is absolutely work on growing that conversation into as many sectors and as many geographies as possible. Because as we possibly we all know, politicians don't like to be the first one at a party. They want to know everyone's there having a good time, so they're going to be safe to arrive and be seen there. And so the bigger this conversation gets, the faster that moves. But it's not just about moving the politicians towards the legislation. It's about moving all of those networks towards thinking with these new parameters. And that is hugely empowering. So it, it's kind of, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting mixture, actually, this, this, this whole initiative, because it, it, yes, it's about accountability, but it's also about actually concretely inspiring change. Yeah, it's, it's so inspiring and it just makes so much sense as well. And it's really important. I, I, you know, I just want to echo what you were saying about like the lens that you're onboarding people through to understand this and that already activating change for behavior. I think that is just exactly what needs to be happening right now because it, this is the future. It's, it's just a matter of time. So I really like like that, that way of thinking about it and communicating. And so maybe you could sort of just like highlight a few examples of what it could look like, how things could be different with actual disasters that are happening. I mean, I know there was the big or higher derailment that happened a couple of weeks ago and stuff. So like what could be different in these types of situations? I think there could be a huge difference because what we're looking at in a situation like the Ohio derailment is effectively, I mean, those trains had braking systems that dated back to the Civil War era, pretty much. I mean, you know, a century old and more. And effectively, if you had a law in place that said, if the you know severe and widespread long or long-term harm happens as a result of your actions or your failure to act, you know you could be personally as a top decision maker, you, your freedom, your reputation would, could all be on the line. You can bet your bottom dollar that they would have updated those braking systems, for example. You know, I mean, that's a very concrete example. But we could also look at you know situations like Deepwater Horizon, for example, where you know there was a clear you know, there was a failure to observe certain safety protocols, for example, people would be having a whole different attitude to how they go through those protocols if they know that that level of criminal responsibility, you know, lies behind any serious errors. So that's that's a really, you know, obvious, obvious side of things. But actually, the other thing is also going back to the drawing board on big projects. You know, effectively, at the moment, 
And, you know, we have a kind of default, you know, people have got into this kind of grooves of how you can get things approved or licensed things or move things through and all of those sorts of kind of procedures that happen at board level and at policy level. You know, there hasn't really been anything to to, to sort of circumscribe that or to put a safety rail around it. And, and that is potentially what this law can do. So it, effectively, what you could end up with is a situation where, you know, there, there are different potential ways of going with, I mean, you know, you might, I mean, ultimately, you could end up in a situation where, you know, do we give permission for a new coal mine? Well, no, because we know that, you know, we know what the long-term effects are of that. And therefore, you know, what, and obviously it's not retroactive, but, you know, once the law's in place, you know, that's exactly the kind of decision that might be thought of in a different way. And the same goes for things like, I mean, you know, I, I mean, we imagine that initial cases, as and when they're taken, in at least to begin with, will be very clear cut cases because obviously lawyers are going to want this to evolve and, and work. So probably early cases are unlikely to be climate ones. They're more likely to be direct damage type ones. But, you know, one can see how this can affect the, you know, it could affect sort of all the way up the supply chain right to sort of board director sort of, you know, project conception level, but also the other way to due diligence as to how things are supplied. I mean, there are already laws moving through at the European level and probably elsewhere around improving due diligence. But like I mentioned earlier, at the moment, that kind of concept, if you like, or, or, or you know, I mean, think of something like environment, environmental impact assessments and supply chain due diligence, you know, again, they, they could at the moment be, be seen as sort of tick box exercises, but they are taken more seriously, for example, when it comes to human rights. Now, human rights, uh, you know, we've just, we've just had acknowledged the human right to a clean and safe environment. You know, that kind of opens up, again, a whole bunch of um, ways of looking at this that ecocide law will directly support. Because, I mean, the sort of rights sphere and the criminal law sphere have, have a kind of complementary relationship. I mean, you know, we have a basic human right to life. But if murder isn't a crime, that human right doesn't mean very much because it's still okay to kill people, right? So it's about kind of circumscribing that so that, again, so that the whole kind of attitude to, you know, those other aspects about what needs looking after in the process of producing something or, you know, engaging a certain economic service or what have you, that then becomes you know, becomes much more carefully and examined, not just more carefully examined, but examined from the right angle. So, I mean, one of the ways we like to think of this law is almost like a criminal version of a health and safety law. So, you know, if you're designing a factory, you don't do it so that you know you will almost break people's heads open, but not quite. You know, that's a kind of how do I tick the box and get close to the line approach. With health and safety, you don't do that. You go, how do we make sure nobody breaks their head open? I mean, it's the same thing with flying a plane. I mean, you know, you don't fly a plane with a 10% chance of it crashing. You know, the whole reason air travel is so safe is because it's so incredible. You know, people totally want to avoid those hazards. So that's the kind of, of attitude and potential practical sort of knock-on effects that, that this law could have. Yeah. And so how close do you think we are to achieving like, like what have that, what have been some of the wins right now? What are some of the, what's the legal landscape like? You said the EU's kind of doing quite a few different things right now. So where are we at right now? Probably the biggest, single biggest milestone was the emergence of that consensus definition of ecocide that I mentioned earlier in the sense that in the past there had been working definitions, but they'd always been one lawyer or a small group of lawyers saying, oh, we think this should be a crime and we think it should look like this. What our foundation did was actually convene 12 lawyers from around the world that had differing legal backgrounds, but also potentially differing ideologies, some more conservative, some more activist. So the results, and, and we also did a big consultation as well, including Indigenous voices. 
And so the result has a breadth of credibility and legitimacy that nothing had previously had. And we believe that this is one of the, one of the reasons why it has moved so fast and that it's, been, it's, it's rapidly become the starting point for diplomatic discussions, legal and academic discussions. So that's one really key thing. At the diplomatic level, um, it, there are certain states that have been kind of driving this. And, and really, the, I mean, the key one here is the um, Pacific Ocean state of Vanuatu, the Republic of Vanuatu. They were the first to officially call for member states of the International Criminal Court to consider adding ecocide to the list of international crimes. And they did that in 2019. And since then, they have we, we've worked quite closely with them on a number of, I mean, you know, events at UN level, for example, at the COP talks and, 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 and so on. Um, and there's the beginnings of a, a kind of informal group of states, if you like, that's willing to move this forward. Belgium is another key, key player. Belgium's actually in the process of kind of moving through legislation domestically around ecocide. And there are other countries that are sort of at the beginnings of discussions of that kind. And that obviously helps as well to reinforce the, the sort of international movement towards things internationally. This year, we've already seen the Council of Europe, which is separate, it's different to the European Parliament, has 46 member states, has strongly endorsed ecocide law and recommended all its member states to, to legislate. As I say, the EU is... Um, in the process of revising its environmental crime directive. And it's actually, there's actually a number of consultative committees that have to look, look through the text before it goes to parliament. And so, and all of those committees have now looked at it and all of them have recommended inclusion of ecocide or ecocide level crimes. So that, that's, that, yeah, that's, that, that's really quite far advanced. And what we anticipate is that probably by the end of this year, we could be seeing some kind of multi-state endorsement, probably simultaneously at COP in Dubai and at the International Criminal Courts Assembly, which this year will be held in New York. And it's entirely possible that by next year, we could see some kind of formal advancement of this at the International Criminal Court, whether that's you know a working group, whether that's an amendment text proposal, you know, something that actually brings it sort of concretely into discussion. We have already been, for the, for the last few years, we've already been breaking attendance records at the International Criminal Court's annual assembly for, um, for, for, for events there. Like we've been holding events on Ecoside there for the last five, six years. And, you know, every year more people attend those than attend anything else there. So, you know, I mean, obviously with the online reach, that, that helps a lot. Um, but for example, last year, again, joint with the Republic of Vanuatu, we applied to do a side event within the within that annual assembly, and you don't hear until sort of two or three weeks before what room you've been allocated. You know whether you've been allocated a room, all of that. So we're always a little bit on tenterhooks, like until, <laughs> you know until that happens. But we actually got given the plenary hall. You know, thousand seater plenary hall with all the countries in it, as in like it's like it's like the UN, right? You know, and we were given the prime slot of the week. Now what that shows is how seriously the court is taking this discussion. And when they had their 20th anniversary last year, because the, the, the International Criminal Court opened its doors in 2002, they had a little conference to commemorate last year and they themed it around the past, present and future of the court. Now, we sent a representative along thinking, well, at least we can get excited into the conversation if a question gets asked or something like that. We didn't even need to because a whole chunk of the future section of that conference was dedicated to the possibility of ecocide becoming a fifth crime. 
So that just gives you a flavor of, you know, how far this is advanced. And I think it's an interesting one for listeners because often it might be the first time they've encountered this concept. And yet it's already really quite far advanced at the diplomatic level. And that's very exciting. So I think what we also do, and we often see this when we speak to people, is you see this little kind of light come on and people go, oh my God, there's hope. You know, there's something that can be done that's actually happening. And that's really exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it is a very, very exciting time. And it sounds like all the pieces of the puzzle are falling together and the momentum is really growing. It's so fantastic to hear about the wins that you've had. And so what do you sort of see as the biggest barriers that um, might prevent this or delay this from happening as quickly as you think it might? Is there anything that's, you know, might end up derailing some of this? Well, it's quite interesting, actually, because with, I mean, on one level, it really is the easiest campaign in the world in the sense that it's actually quite hard to argue against. You know, I mean, you put that definition in front of somebody and we have yet to have somebody say, no, that shouldn't be a crime. Of course, there will be interests that would probably prefer it not to be in place. But the interesting thing about that is they will, on the whole, not be complaining publicly. Why? Because I mean, let's just take, I don't know, the big oil and gas companies for an, for an example. You know, they've spent the what last 20 to 30 years greenwashing. Are they now going to come out in public and say they don't want this law? It's going to wreck all those millions of investment in, 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 in trying to look good. Of course, they're not going to do that. So effectively, while yes, there may be resistance and you know, countries may be, may be thinking, oh, we don't know if we're ready. Your governments may be thinking, we don't know if we're ready to to address this yet, or they might try and sidestep it, but they know it's coming. And even quite conservative politicians have told us, you know, we we know this is inevitable. We just don't know if we're ready. I mean, they haven't necessarily said it in those words, but, you know, there, there are always going to be people who think that, yes, this is a good idea in principle, but it shouldn't be done this way or those kinds of things. You know, there are those kinds of things. But on the whole, the more this conversation stays in the public sphere, the faster it moves, because that's where it's hardest to object to. For very obvious reasons, you know, it's on one level, it is a complete no brainer. You know, ultimately, I think we are not, you know, we are probably set for a rocky couple of decades at the very least with what we're doing to the planet and with what, with with how far, you know, the the points we've already passed. But if we're going to move through into some kind of civilization where we're actually operating in a workable way with the natural world, in a harmonious way with the natural world, something like this actually has to be in place. So there is this kind of inevitability of the direction of travel. So there might be little sort of glitches here and there about you know how someone exactly wants to define it or all of those sorts of things. But the overall direction of travel is very clear. And the other thing that I will say is that, you know, so as human beings, we're incredibly imaginative, we're incredibly creative. We have far more agency than we are often brought up to believe. The other thing is, that, you know, we tend to manifest what we give most attention to. So when people, so journalists often ask me, I mean, like yourself, you know, what are the biggest barriers? What are the biggest obstacles? I have to say, within our organization, we literally don't even give that thought time. You know, we, we just go, what is it we're trying to achieve? How are we going to do it? Where are the levers? Where are the connections? And we just move forward. We never stop to try and counter obstacles that haven't even appeared yet or even ones that have, you know, because effectively, if you focus on the obstacles, it's the obstacles, you, fo- you know, the, the obstacles manifest themselves. So, you know, it's, I, I think, I think we're, we're just a lot more powerful than we give ourselves credit for. So, I mean, I think our whole kind of media approach to everything in our sort of globally dominant culture is so negative. It's hardly surprising we create the level of, you know, dysfunctional culture that we do. You know, if effectively, if we, you know, if we focused on, you know, 
getting the right stuff done. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how much you can actually achieve. I mean, of course, the, you know, the issue is there are always, you know, there are potentially going to be, although I was going to say there are potentially going to be guys, somebody, you know, sitting there with their white cat stroking their, their cat saying, you know, how do I take over the world and applying that same principle in another direction. But to be honest, I have to say, I haven't met many like that. The more we sort of work at, at the kind of government level and stuff, the more we encounter people who, on the whole, are trying to do what they believe is the right thing. It's very much, I think, about, as I say, I mean, I, th I think direction of travel is a really good way to, to sort of put it. I mean, what we see this initiative, I suppose, as a kind of, well, you know what happens when you draw a pencil through water? You know, you, you end up with kind of all sorts of like swirls and stuff going along behind as you draw that through the water. I mean, it's a bit of a basic sort of metaphor, I suppose, but it's like, if you create that leading edge, then you end up with this kind of entrainment effect. I quite honestly think that that's what's happening. And I, you know, and I think effectively, this is something that has to happen. And you wouldn't believe how many synchronicities have kind of, con you know, converged themselves around what we're doing. I mean, it's almost like we have a lot of interaction with indigenous spokespeople because there's a very kind of intuitive understanding of what we're aiming to do within indigenous cultures because it's so deeply understood that i mean if you like you know rule number 1 is don't damage mother earth you know that that there's a kind of natural affinity there there is this sense that you know it's not just us doing this i mean you know maybe i'm just being speculative here but it, it does kind of feel like the planet wants this to happen <laughs> And maybe that's a little out there, but um, but hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna risk saying that. I think it's it's I think I think without it, we're going to be in some really difficult difficult situations. And I think life itself, if you like, is kind of realizing that. So yeah. <laughs> no, I absolutely love the whole philosophy behind it and the way that your team operates. I think we need more thinking like that, like actually just focusing on getting it done and not focusing on the the barriers and the challenges and the heaviness around everything, because it can be so easy to fall into that trap because that's what we're bombarded with, with media every mm -hmm. day. So I really love that as a philosophy and yeah, that Mother Earth wants this, of course, absolutely. So I'm sure there's so much good energy and power behind um, everything that you guys are doing. Uh, and so what, is, but what about for us as individuals or businesses, people listening, like what can we actually do to help play a part to move this forward? Well, there's actually lots of things. And the first thing I would say is, you know, head, head over to our website, stopecoside.com, because there's a whole Act Now menu that covers a whole bunch of different things. And we also have a number of different networks, including one for business where we have a, a business and finance kind of open letter that you can put your name to that, you know, basically, you know, acknowledges that, you know, businesses are... <laughs> effectively require healthy ecosystems just like everybody else and also require this kind of stabilization aspect that can come from from putting the right laws in place because i think i mean it's interesting how the investment world is really starting to pay attention to this now because and insurance as well you know it, it's it's all about stabilizing risk you know if you know what's going to be in place and where you can safely put your money or you know what projects are going to be safe both for your own investments but also for the planet then this is going to be super super helpful so that's that's a, a sort of level of interest that is that is growing quite a lot at the moment but there's also you know we have network we have we have art for ecocide law we have a youth for ecocide law network which is amazing and and sort of semi autonomous i mean they're they're incredible the young people you know running that they're just phenomenal and yeah so all these different areas that are sort of growing up around 
around support for this. And of course, you can also, you know, you can become a signed up member of the campaign if you want to do that. And then that obviously concretely helps us with, um, you know, we have a restricted fund that memberships go into and that gets used for specifically sort of diplomatic progress of, of the work, you know, presence at COP talks, that sort of thing, um, at the International Criminal Court. So, so yeah, there's lots and lots of different ways. If you're really enthusiastic, you can start giving talks. <laughs> the most important thing is actually to talk about it. It's the conversation. And, and the word itself has its own momentum, ecocide. You know, it, it's not like, you know, you start telling somebody about the, I don't know, legally binding treaty on transnational corporations with regard to human rights and they're asleep by the third word. But you say ecocide and actually people kind of get it. It's, it's got a, it's got a impetus of its own. No, definitely. And I think that is, there's so much power in our sphere of influence to be able to bring this up, talk about it and yeah, continue that movement. Because as you said, there's such a big shift, the more that it's in the eye of the public, the more that it is moving forward faster. Yeah. So thank you for all of those great ideas. Uh, and so, you know, you seem like a very positive person. I love the way that you run the the foundation, but I'm also curious if, you know, if you've had a difficult day or if there's been times with work or life and, you know, or if maybe it's not you, maybe there's not practices that you actually pull on, but things that you advise people who are maybe a little paralyzed or a little bit stuck in fear yet. What would you kind of say for either of those situations? A couple of things, I think, I mean, for me, I, I mean, I do have practices in the sense that, I mean, I, I always kind of, I always ground every day. So I go out in the, I mean, I have a, I'm lucky enough to have a garden. I do go out in the garden, in my bare feet, you know, wind or sun, even snow, obviously in the UK, snow doesn't get super cold. So you can do that um, briefly, but always connect with nature because that's ultimately what all this is about. Um, so I always do that. I try and meditate most days. I don't always get the time, <laughs> but actually it's one of those things where actually it so, it so pays back. <laughs> in the sense that actually if if it's one of those really really hectic days there's nothing that helps more than taking 10 to 15 minutes out and actually just stilling the brain for a while um because that can really kind of re-energize and also just sorts out the the key things from the from the from all the rest of the mess that's floating around in my head <laughs> so there's that but the other thing i would say i mean people sometimes say to me well, how do i be an activist you know, and, and I kind of feel like, you know, the word activist has sometimes come to, you know, connote just people with, um, not just because there's some, it's absolutely essential what they're doing, but people on the streets with placards and, you know, taking kind of direct action. Actually, activism is so much broader than that. It's so much broader than that. It's really just about being active and not being passive with what's happening around you. And I think most people who move into that space of agency do so because of some moment of outrage, you know, they, 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 they've had something that they've observed that they just go, that's just wrong. That's just unfair. That just shouldn't be happening. Um, so often that's this sort of initial impulse. But, you, but I think if you stay in that space, it's very hard to keep moving because you burn out and you, you, can, you can just spend your whole life being angry. And that's just, it's not actually helpful for anybody's health. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, we all have, I really deeply believe that we all have really strong talents. You know, we may not always know off the top of our head what our particular thing is, but if we ask our friends, often they'll tell us, you know, you're really good at X, Y, or Z. Now, this, so, and that'll be the thing you do effortlessly and that you love doing because that's what your friends come to you for, because that's what you do. You know, that if you, if you can identify that and apply it to the thing that outraged you, you, you you're away. That's it. You've, you know, you've, you've got something that you can do and, and, and it will be, it could be in any area. You know, it could be in any area of life. Um, and that's that's really empowering, I think. Mm, yeah, no, fantastic. Thank you. And how do you think we can live wide awake? 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think um, observe. I mean, I don't mean in a sense that in a detached sense, but we're often so tied up with the things that we think, either the things that are just go running around our head or the incredible sort of deluge of fragmented information that's coming at us. So in a sense, being able to just step back a little bit and just kind of actually watch and watch how we're feeling about things and how we're seeing things so that you just end up with that sort of slight broadening of the perspective that allows us to not just to be critical thinkers in that academic sense, which is, which is all very well on one level, but actually on a kind of more deeply energetic, more emotional sense. Because, you know, I mean, as a little example, you know, we all kind of know when we're having conversations with somebody, we can feel what the emotional energy is of that conversation, even if what we're saying isn't necessarily reflecting that, because often it isn't in social situations. So being able to just sort of take that step back and go, okay, what's really happening here? You know, what actually, you know, what is the flow of energy? Where is the, you know, where is the power? You know, what's, and, and, and that can, that can be quite a peaceful thing to do, but it can also be really revelatory, you know, to sort of, but, and, and it takes practice. And, and, you know, it's a journey I'm very much still on, <laughs> but, um, but I think it, it really, it really helps to realize that, you know, we don't have to be caught up in that surface level. You know, we can take that sort of slightly deeper or further back perspective and, and, and really feel it, feel it with an intuition. I think intuition is a really underrated sense, uh, you know, in the sense that, you know, we, you know, we think of our physical senses like sight and hearing and smell and touch and so on. but I firmly believe that we can train our intuitions just like we can train, you know, our, our other senses. And I think it's well worth doing that. It's very, very rewarding. And everything gets more fun. <laughs> <laughs> like what, 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 what becomes more fun for you? I, I just, I just feel like, <laughs> I just feel like that, you know, the world and people are intrinsically incredibly interesting. And when you start sort of looking, when you start sort of consciously, you know, looking at what's happening dynamically between people and, and in the world and stuff, you know, yeah, sure, there's lots of crap that you need to wade through. But if, you, if you're not wading through it, but you're sort of stepping back a little bit and kind of watching that and just sensing it and kind of, and obviously sort of interacting from that kind of more heart-based place, it's just, I don't know, I think things become more like play and less like work. And that's, a, there's a sort of, effortlessness that goes with that it's like it's like what, what what you know sort of olympic swimmers or whatever will say when they get in the zone sort of thing it's a bit like that and i'm in no way professing to be in the zone the whole time but you kind of you sort of know when you are or you know when you have been and i mean i know that you know sometimes i'll start a day feeling quite kind of almost that you know there's so many things coming at me in terms of things we need to do that i could be quite you know start off feeling a bit anxious or whatever but you know with a bit of grounding with a bit of that sort of distancing and a bit of that you know that the sense of kind of synchronicity and play can kick back in. And then that's just, it, it's just so much, it's just such a different way to, to, to interact with the world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I made a commitment to myself almost a, a year ago now, actually, that I wanted to have more play in my life and that I wanted to like operate from a place of love and not fear. And it's definitely a journey and a practice because it doesn't, you know, for someone that's been on the other side of it for so long, it really does take a retraining of the brain and the way that you do things. But yeah, I loved what you were saying about hearts coming from a heart centered place, following that intuition, having that little bit of distance so that you're not so caught up in everything. I think 
lots of fantastic little nuggets of wisdom there of how we can actually implement this on a daily basis. So thank you so much, Jojo, for your energy, for your insights. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I'm just so blown away with the work you're doing and so happy that it is getting the momentum that it truly deserves. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Jojo. Firstly, we have to stop treating nature like a bank of resources because at the end of the day, those resources are finite. We are deeply entwined with nature and not separated for it. So while we are the ones creating the damage, let's remember that nature is the one in charge. Secondly, an ecocide law seems more and more inevitable, and the more that we can keep the conversation going, the faster it will continue to move. So I encourage each of us to talk about it and share about it this week. And thirdly, we manifest what we give attention to. So let's focus on the positive and achieving what it is we want and what we're working on, not the obstacles that are in our way. Let's continue to move forward. curious what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into i'd love to hear from you you can find me at stephel dixon or at live wide awake if you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us consider subscribing and supporting i hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken and until next time live wide awake